All right, let us take a moment of quiet and silence as we do regularly uh, to let our hearts be prepared to receive God's word today um, and be, just let our spirits, our minds, our attentions catch up to our bodies in this room and ready to receive the word. Father in heaven, we trust you are active and present in this world and in our hearts. We trust that you want what's best for us, that you know what's best for us, and that you have already done what is best for us. And so we are ready to receive that message of hope and healing today. Please let us receive that from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we are still in the Gospel of Mark. Surprise, surprise. And what has happened so far is that there has been a preparation for the long-awaited reign of God to finally come to arrive, and that is coming to arrive in the personal presence of Jesus. He is now the personal place, the physical place, where what God wants to happen is happening, and he's making it possible for that to be available to everyone. And so he starts out his ministry going out into the wilderness to fight Satan. He goes to the wilderness where God's other God's preceding agents for his hope and his blessing, the people of Israel, had failed. The people that were responsible to carry God's message of restoration to the world, it was discovered that they were enslaved to the same sickness that pervaded all of humanity. And so Jesus goes to that same place in the wilderness, but he conquers Satan there, and he emerges from that place and immediately announces the kingdom of God is here. Behold, the presence of God is here. The time, the long-awaited time has finally come near. The presence of God, the kingdom of God, the reign of God is now here in his personal presence. Therefore, repent and believe in that message. Believe that he is carrying that reign now. And so then he immediately then starts going town to town, teaching and demonstrating his authority. And we're going to talk about that today. So we're going to pick up in Mark 1, verse 21 and 22. It says, they, this is important. I'm going to stop with this. They. Who's they? They is Jesus, and he has just selected a few new partners to join him, his disciples. He refuses to do anything on his own. He immediately, before his kingdom even takes off, is inviting new people to partner in that with him. People that had not shown any capacity or qualities or skill sets that made them worthy of the call. They were scrub fishermen. And he invited them to drop everything they had and come partner with him to advance the kingdom. He wants this to expand beyond just him and to include them and then not only them, but us as well. So they, Jesus and his new partners, went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. He doesn't say here the content of his teaching. The emphasis is that he was teaching with authority. This is in contrast to the other teachers of the law at the time, the scribes, who would appeal to long-standing rabbinic traditions and about, about interpretations of Scripture and to demonstrate their authority. They were learned men who knew those traditions and were able to communicate them. And Jesus, in contrast, is announcing and declaring realities to just come from his own personal presence. He is the carrier of that authority. He just kind of gave the content of the teaching when he's announcing that the long-awaited reign of God is now present through 
his personal presence. That is the content. And so let me just stop with talking about this authority and how we respond to authority. Most of us may admit we don't really like authority. We're a bit suspicious of it. This comes from a good place and a not so good place. The good place of that suspicion is that most of us have experienced, some more than others, people that had authoritative positions and abused it. People that were teachers or pastors or parents or politicians or medical experts, someone else who possessed some kind of power, some kind of say, and through self-indulgence in their own interests, a desire for power and money, they abused that authority. And if we've been victims of that, especially the closer proximity we've been to that level of being taken advantage of, we are prone to resist authority. I can't trust any authority out there. And there's a truth to that, that we should be a little bit hesitant because human beings in their fallenness have demonstrated they don't handle power very well. And that's kind of still the case. So we should have multiple checks on that. But there's also a negative side to that, where sometimes we just hate authority because we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. <laughs> we want toddler levels of freedom where we will do what we want and make other people endure the consequences. It's just merely like, that you don't want me to do it is the reason why I'm not going to do it. If you would tell me, if you, like my kids when they're three years old, it's like, oh, you want me to sit still? Just by virtue of you telling me that has indicated to me that I'm gonna do the exact opposite. And we learn to kind of like shield that and like suppress how obvious that is, but that still rebellious streak continues. And so in contrast though, Jesus will show in this passage his true uses of authority that are healthy and life-giving, that are selfless, that are for the sake of other people, and that are ultimately liberating. He's liberating us with his uses of authority. And as he does so, he trains us towards receiving a true freedom not to do what we want. No such freedom exists in the gospel. Freedom to do what you want but a freedom to resist the powers of sin, of darkness, and of death in our lives, and instead live into the kingdom with fearless hope. So let's go to kind of the main point and direction today, that Jesus uses his authority by liberating us from the enslaving powers of darkness and death. So later on, we'll eventually talk about the fact that there's kind of lurking within this, the call that insofar as we get to carry authority as human beings, we use our authority the same way. So if you stand on top of a, of a God who relinquished his authority out of service for other people, then when we get to carry some authority in this life, we will choose to use it the same way. Versus appealing to Jesus' name to abuse our authority. That will come up again and again in Mark, but that's not the focus of today. More the focus is Jesus' own authority that liberates us from the powers of darkness and death. And this is crucial as these powers of darkness, which is kind of like an all-encompassing word for sin, Satan, the demonic, and of death, those are the powers against which we have no other recourse. Those are the powers that do the most damage to humanity, that cause us the most harm, and they are the powers that human resources are not capable to ultimately resist. There's no amount of collaboration, technological know-how, education, getting everyone on the same pattern, tools, and other accumulation of human resources and capacity that can help us overcome sin, Satan, and death. We may put a dent in it, 
We may do some positive things in the world, but we have no ultimate recourse against those powers, which is why we need a good and loving authority outside of us to rescue us, which Jesus does. So he has two miracles that he kind of repeats over and over again to draw these enemies out into the open in a dramatic confrontation where he will demonstrate that he has authority over them. But that authority will ultimately culminate on the cross where he dies to his own interests, lets those powers do the worst to him, and overcomes them, making a promise that we will one day never go against that. So what does that mean for us now in this time between times? Let's read about Jesus first exercising a demon, light stuff, and then we'll talk about Jesus' healing power and where we, how we react to both of them. Verses 24 and following, 23 and following, where Jesus has authority to free us from the dark powers. Just then, there was an, in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking each other, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. What an exciting episode. Some exorcist moments here where there's a man that displays being possessed by a demon, and Jesus draws this confrontation out into the open. It's unmistakable, the dark power he's confronting, the demon calls him out and says he knows who he is. What do you have you to come to do with us? This is language for let's have a fight here. The demon is calling him out and ready to fight. The language of what does this have to do with us, each other, is from Old Testament kind of sayings of like let's call out and fight with each other. He's trying to kind of like peg him in a quarter by identifying him as the Holy One of God. And Jesus with no incantations, no appeal to something outside of himself. He doesn't have to go through a list of spells and make sure he gets all the wording right. He just speaks a word similar to how God speaks a word to eliminate chaos and bring chaos into order and creation, and the demon is gone. And Jesus shows his authority, just as God does, by speaking a word and accomplishing what he wants. And at once, as you would imagine, fame about him spread. When you see people do something so miraculous and so quickly, you're going to pay attention. And so Jesus draws out to the open this dramatic encounter with a dark power the demonic, and he conquers it right there on the spot. This leads us to the very obvious question, what do we do about this? Can you think of a moment in the New Testament when Jesus commissions other people to cast out demons? He does with his disciples. There's a very specific moment when they carry a unique authority, having walked with him in a physical presence to carry that same authority too. He sends them out. You can go to my next slide, my where he's talking about what we're going to do about it. Um, and so he draws, he does commission the disciples to do that. But after that generation, there is zero instances in the rest of the New Testament where the church is commissioned to, have a, to identify and experience a dramatic encounter with an evil spirit to perform an exorcism. That is not a common expectation. Matter of fact, in Jude which was only one chapter long that very few people read very often, there's even a warning against confronting demonic energies which we don't understand. And there's, there's kind of, it kind of makes me think of the warning C.S. Lewis gives where he says there's, when we are confronted with the realities of darkness and sin and Satan 
and demonic energies, we are either prone to overpay attention and get too engaged and almost pursue it too much or pretend it doesn't exist and function in life as if it's just what we can see and was known. I would say most people in our country are prone to do the latter and pretend that the evil darkness doesn't exist, but it should just be a good warning that we don't want to go the other direction and overcorrect to look for the demonic in everything, presume any evil that anyone ever does has, means they are demon-possessed, or presume all mental illness is a reflection of demon possession. There's other things going on there. And here's the newsflash, we are not Jesus. So Jesus has unique role, and as we go about imitating him, there are some things we get to imitate and some things we don't. In this case, I don't think our job needs to be to go exercise demons. However, when you read through the New Testament, you see a different kind of resistance to the demonic that is sometimes not as obvious. And actually, previews for this start way back in Genesis 4, where the first murder is about to happen, where Cain murders his brother Abel. If you remember that story, Cain and Abel both are offering sacrifices. For some reason or another, God is less pleased with Cain's sacrifice. Perhaps there's something in Cain's heart that is making that sacrifice mean less. And God can tell Cain is nurturing a, a, a sense of resistance to his brother, a sense of, 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 of anger. He's letting residual anger kind of build in him. And God warns him that sin is crouching at the door and to pay attention. Because sin was crouching at the door, and he didn't pay attention and let that get the best of him, and he killed um, his brother. Or we think about King Saul. Remember when David was on the rise, and people were singing songs, celebrating how wondrous David's victories were, and Saul started nurturing resentment in his heart, and nurturing anger in his heart. And then an evil spirit did take over him and led to some intense paranoia. And so if you see where I'm going, if we want to resist the demonic that God has declared his victory over, it starts with paying attention to that resentment and that anger and that malice we're prone to nurture in our hearts, not the really obvious encounters. We see this in uh, Ephesians 4. My next slide, brother. Where Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not make room for the devil. Then he has a chapter and a half where he talks about mutual forgiveness speaking kindly to one another, having tender hearts, mutual submission to one another in every role of life. And he concludes that section by saying, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. When the way to resist the powers of darkness, which Jesus' presence conquered, is not by chasing and seeking them out to perform exorcism, nor is it about pretending they don't exist, that we can just accomplish all that we want just with human resources. It is a prayerful submission to the authority of Jesus to resist nurturing anger and resentment in our hearts. That is the way in which Satan and his powers are on the move. Look at James 3, talking about wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. Some uh, translations will say demonic. 
For where there is evil and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and wickedness of every kind. Satan is a liar. And the best, most effective lies are not the ones that are obvious and out in the open. They are the ones that are more subtle and sometimes easier to detect. But before you know it, they take over and can move a whole people towards a place of darkness. And we need to confront this now because I am most concerned by a church and our culture and our country that is so easily swayed by a selfish ambition and resentment and allows that resentment to almost purposefully nurture within us and fostering in us a, mal a malicious tribalism that is fearful and is not rooted in the love of God that can conquer all things. And this actually moves the most in social media. There was a report that came out this week about a, a, that they've researched uh, the top pages, the top Christian pages on Facebook in 2019. 19 of the 20 were run by what they call troll farms, where they are professional, tech-savvy people who, who specifically nurture propaganda to arouse anger and malice in people's hearts. The books that I've read around social media basically describe, if it's free for us, you got to acknowledge that there's a cost on the other end. We're paying for it in some way. Social media companies get paid by keeping us on there, and they keep us on there by nurturing emotional responses, and, the, and we are more likely to stay on when anger and malice are nurtured than when good feelings are nurtured. And so Facebook and YouTube will make sure you see things that are extremely for your side or extremely against your side so that you can get big mad in the process. I don't even want Facebook anymore. I get on so I can make sure that I'm on the private message group that we have or whatever. But I, because of that, I have like 20 friends. And I can even tell now, when I accidentally get on there for other stuff, I see someone post and I'm like, what are they saying? That makes me, makes me fat, fired up. Even this week, something was on there. I'm like, no, that wasn't okay. I'm cutting the grass and like just dwelling on it. And like, like it, it is nurturing in the heart. Like the thing I'm about to preach on, I literally spent like three days preparing and then I cut the grass on Thursday night and the whole time I was thinking about someone post on there. I'm like, what are we even doing here? But there is a temptation to, when you get your information from the same place you get your belonging because we're lonely and isolated, it basically collapses those things into two and you, it's hard for us to dispute and discern where misinformation is appealing to our desires for disdain and our fears and riles up anger within us. And before you know it, you are resistant to anyone that doesn't already agree with where you are and not recognizing that we are under the wiles of Satan and the demonic as we do it. We have to pay attention to things that are less obvious but actually lead us toward that same path. But zooming back into Jesus now, Jesus is conquering and saying, none of you have any authority over sin, Satan, and, and, and his evil powers. Human beings have been incapable of resisting that. We are at a loss. There's no kind of human resources that we could gather to permanently overcome that. We are desperate for Jesus, but he has freed us from that. He has freed us so that we can be enslaved to him instead. The Bible is very clear that all of us are enslaved. Nobody's free. You're either enslaved to sin and the power of sin, or you're enslaved to Jesus. And we get to choose which one we are enslaved to and let him free us towards making that choice. Romans 6 is a great passage that lays out that freedom that only Jesus can give. And he ultimately, though he demonstrated this in his teaching, most of that was to give context to what he would do on the cross when all the sin and evil in the world could finally do its worst to him to kill God 
And when he raises from the dead, he demonstrates that those powers have been broken. But so we are in this time between times when his, the powers of sin have been broken, but they are still allowed to be present. Later on, Jesus will give the parable of the wheat and the tares, saying that for this time, he is reigning. The powers have been broken, but there will be a time where the wheat and the weeds will grow together, where evil is allowed to still exist, though its powers have been broken. And while we are in this time between times, we get to show the faith that we have, that Jesus has reigned, and that we will not be taken by those powers anymore. And when we are, praise God, he will forgive us for it and show mercy and empower us again to keep fighting. We demonstrate our faithfulness with his followers by fighting and resisting the temptations of evil. The second miracle, same thing, but with death. Let's read about it here. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with the fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So see, Mark, in that summary statement, is collapsing those two kinds of miracles, exercising demons and healing from physical sickness and death, because he sees those as, as dual enemies of Jesus. The sin, Satan, are after leading towards destruction. Satan exists to steal, kill, and destroy. They are opponents of God's good creation, and so there's a permanent link between death and sin and evil. And so Jesus is showing that when he comes to conquer his enemies, he is for flourishing, and so he demonstrates that by allowing resurrection time to rush into the present as he brings someone uh, to full healing who is sick. And so the, even this uh, verb, lifted her up, is the same verb towards resurrection, implying that sickness really, the reason why it's so problematic is for us, it is a preview on the way to death. And so, especially in the ancient world, illness was much more linked to death, when at that point, pre-modern medicine, you gotta think about a fourth of the people died in their first year of life, and half died by the time they were 18. So sickness is very much feared as a sign of death, and Jesus draws that into open, and confronts that and brings healing right then and there to say in his kingdom, sickness and death will not reign. They will not have the last word, and so he is an agent for healing. But again, what are we going to do with that now? We stand in this time between times where sickness and death still have a presence, but they no longer have power over us. They no longer have the last word. And so we stand with Jesus' followers trusting, showing that trust that Jesus has once for all spoken against sickness and death, and our ultimate hope is in him. And so what do we do with that now? Well, for starters, we resist death and are for life at every turn. At every turn, we are for human flourishing. Death doesn't belong. Here's a, here's a nice statement for you. All of you are going to die. Everybody here is going to die. I used to have an accountability partner in Cincinnati, and we would have our meetings in a cemetery on purpose. We walk around there, and as we share each other's sin and weakness, we confess, we extend forgiveness, we spurn each other towards faithful living, we would occasionally just note that one day it'll be someone's job to weed eat around our grave. And that's where we're all going. But it forces us 
to have a richer theology of sickness and of death so that we would choose to find true comfort in the right one in the face of those now because otherwise we pursue false comforts in the face of death now and that will if we imagine kind of a false comfort in the end that death is just a relief it just a presumed to be there and we're going to all go to one happy place one day we will pursue false comforts in this life but if we choose with jesus to acknowledge actually that death is an enemy of god's good creation it is an intruder death does not belong here it is not just a part of life it is not just okay we don't just deal with it it's not just like well yeah everybody dies in the bible death is not welcome it is an enemy of God's good creation, and Jesus identifies as an enemy and overcomes it and welcomes us to do the same. And so in the moment now then, that does mean pursuing life and flourishing at every turn. We do not see anywhere in the New Testament a rushing headlong into known risks of death without any care in the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus was tempted to do just that when he was in the wilderness with Satan. Mark doesn't have all those details, but Matthew and Luke do, and the G Satan tempts Jesus, go jump off that temple over there and land on the ground and let God save you. He's tempting him to rush headlong into a known risk in his human frailty and tempt God to do something about it. And Jesus quotes back to him, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. There is no room for a kind of, a, a kind of throw it all to the wind, faith over fear in New Testament Christianity. There's a resistance at every turn where we see instances of Paul escaping death. We see since in Philippians 1 where he says that he could die and go be with Jesus, and that sounds great, but he's refusing to do that because God is a God of flourishing in life, and he will choose to keep living now to serve him. And we see that Paul even recommends to Timothy when he's got stomach ailments that are persistent, he better mix in some wine there. They don't have medicines available, but the ones that they know of, maybe some wine will help. And let's cure some sickness by having Timothy drink some wine. And that theology that is resistant to death and is pro-life at every turn encouraged the church to pursue medical advancements from the beginning, curing the sick where they could, housing the sick to bring them comfort when they could, and any uh, 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 medicine available to resist sincere risks of physical illness we pursue. And when you know that God has always worked through human agents, when we see human agents bring the things of God, we celebrate that God would use human ingenuity to bring about good things. That's how he's always done it. When things went awry, he called a new humanity to bring things right. When they failed, he became a human to make things right. And then when he rose from the dead and ascended back to the heavens, he called human beings to bear his presence on earth to be the ones that are messengers of his good news. When God does most anything good in the world, he uses human agents to do it. And so when we see human agents do things towards his end that are for human flourishing, praise God that he has empowered us with creativity and ingenuity to do that. And so we receive as a gift and celebrate when God has re relieved us of death. But we know that's not the end, right? Because even those people that Jesus healed, they all died. All of them. He weeps at Lazarus' grave, raises from the dead, and then Lazarus promptly dies within a few decades. None of these people live forever that he heals. And so while we will celebrate and receive when medicine brings a cure as a gift from God to extend our life, we never presume it or expect it. And when medicine doesn't work, we are called to pray for healing, that God would do a miracle. 
And sometimes God does. When we pray that prayer, we are standing with confidence, trusting that we know what God can do and what he ultimately will do. And the only question is, we don't know when he will do it. The timing of the healing is the only mystery left. When we pray for a miracle to happen and for healing to happen, sometimes it does. And when it doesn't, we wait on the day when that healing will come to pass. That person that died, especially they were faithful, or before the age of faithfulness, God will raise from the dead. And so the only question is that timing. Will the cure happen now? Praise God if it does. Or will it happen later? But in the end, our hope is beyond physical life. Because all the ones that he healed, and all the miracles we pray for healing, and all the medicine that brings healing, those people all die eventually. And so this is really a testament to our confidence in a God that reigns over death when death comes. And so we resist death at every turn and are for human flourishing. And then when people or we die anyway, we still reflect the fearless confidence that that is not the last word, but God is a God who raises dead things to life. And it is hard to exist in that tension right now with hopeful expectation and prayer for God to bring healing and miracle and an open hand for his timing when he does it. We are called to pray with that confidence and yet we're also called to release it into his hands. Jesus models that prayer well in Gethsemane when he says to God, I know your power, I know what you can do, but I release all things to you. I know your power, I know what you can do, here is my request, but your will be done. And sometimes he brings that into the present now and brings healing, and sometimes we wait to the last day. And so in the time between times, we reflect that Jesus has conquered our ultimate enemies of sin, of Satan, of darkness, and of death by clinging to the true authority, Jesus, and receiving from his authority all sorts of cures and healings and ways he would overcome those powers. But in the end, we know our ultimate hope is in him, that when medicine does cure, we celebrate that it was Jesus who did it. When we see sin and Satan take an L, we celebrate that as Jesus' victory. Even when people do it that don't follow Jesus, we say, we know Jesus is really behind that one. Even when my kids get sick and I'm giving them medicine, I do it in prayer. I pray over them and say, God, please bring healing to them overnight. And when they wake up and are feeling better, may they know how much you love them, that it was you who brought them back healthy again. Even though I'm giving them Tylenol or medicine or antibiotics, I'm also saying Jesus is the one who's doing this. He's the source of this. And so in the meantime, we stand waiting knowing that on the cross and resurrection, Jesus let these two awful, God-forsaken enemies do the worst to him. Enemies that have been destroying, plaguing, dividing families, crushing humans, all along the way, he lets them crush him because his authority is given away. It's not consolidated into himself. It's not to make him distant. It's given away out of service to human beings that are oppressed by horrendous enemies. He has conquered those enemies once and for all and has promised new life that can only be in him. He has given us a reason to hope, and he did it by dying on the cross in real time and space through a real physical body that he let do its worst to him. And it is in that message that we have hope in the face of these enemies today. May we cling to him and not be tempted by Satan's wiles and tempted to have fear in the face of death. Jesus is enough. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, it is hard to live in this time between times. We still see the presence of darkness, the presence of sin, and the presence of death, and it is so disheartening. We so long to escape it once and for all. We receive your word, the courage to confront those powers, that they seem daunting, like Goliaths before us, but that you have ultimately conquered them. We receive with gratitude all the ways in which you've held back those forces to allow for any flourishing now. That is from you. We long, Lord, to be faithful, to not let the pain we experience lead us to be tempted to not think you're present, tempted to doubt that you are with us, tempted to doubt your goodness. May we have confidence that you are good, that you are present, that you care, even in the face of the darkness and death around us. We trust you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray.